Episode of the In Real Deep podcast. I'm your host, Steve Samino, and not with me is my co host, Andrew Johnson. This is a secret episode. This is a quiet recording. Andrew does not know we are doing this. I'm going to let him know after the facts. This is a pirate recording because we decided that it is time to talk about a movie that has been on my mind for nigh on several decades now. A movie that my friend and I talk about a ton. I have that friend with me right now. And we, it is a Saturday afternoon in Los Angeles, and we thought there is no better time in our lives in your lives to discuss and to share conversation about the hit 1998 film Armageddon. And of course, to talk about that, I can only have one special guest. You might know him from a previous episode, the A Star is Born episode. One of our most beloved ones, his commentary was praised and raved about among in critical circles and friend circles. He's a great guest. My friend Chris is here. Hello, Chris. Hello, Steve. And before we even begin, I have to say the idea of this being a Secret Renegade Forbidden Podcast. It's making me rock fucking hard. <laughs> That's why we don't say your last name, just so you can say rock fucking hard and no one knows that you said it. It's very, very important. This is a we're getting real ribald here. We're getting we're using our big words, we're using our saucy words, we're just getting zany. But we mostly are here to talk about Armageddon. We just finished watching Armageddon. Again, it came out in 1998, many, many years ago. It is a movie that is off-discussed and debated in critical circles. It has a Criterion Collection. So that is a weird tidbit of information to drop on people because Criterion Collection is typically for highbrow, artsy, indie films, foreign films, thing with, things with you know limited releases. Not something like Armageddon, but I've always been a defender of this movie. I always think it stands for something. I think it is a very good film that matters and is interesting and relevant and has something genuine, maybe not to say, but but really is put together extremely well. And that is met with derision in a lot of when you when you share that thought with people, they usually don't always respond well. But you know, Chris, we just watched the movie. I know we're both big fans of this. I think, you know, after sitting down and going through it again for the, you know, who knows, 15th, 20th time, it is a it is an action movie done as well as an action movie can be done. Yeah, I'd like to begin my analysis of this movie by letting everyone out there listening know, if you don't like this movie, in the immortal words of Al Swearingen, go fuck yourself. (laughs) I will fucking fight you. <laughs> oh, I mean, it is really, really good, though. We, I think, you know, before we get too deep into it, I think we should talk about when this movie came out and what it means because it came out in 1998. So if you look back at the 90s, you know, 90s filmmaking, 90s Oscar winners, 90s action movies, this was very different than the world we're in now in 2020. That's not like a bold thing to say, but it really is distinct. The 90s were like a softer era. They weren't all about hard truths. They weren't all about, you know, people being hit over the head with moral lessons and and the way things really were. It was it was a at least in America, it was a softer time. It was more about you know, heroism and togetherness and, and America being great and our heroes being unstoppable and conquering all things in our way. Like, it was just a very different film landscape. And Armageddon, I think, is one of the apex of those movies. It really is an action movie where it, it's not, 
It doesn't beat you over the head with the fact that America is great and our heroes are amazing, but it is also in every single fiber and every second of the movie. And I, I actually have to disagree with you. I think it does beat you in the head <laughs> in certain moments. And we'll get to those moments a little bit later. But to kind of piggyback off your point on the 90s, uh, the 90s were a very distinct decade in movie making. And I think our love of movies currently as adults is very much shaped uh, by our experience being young teens in the 90s and being just old enough be able to go to the movies by yourself and you know have enough money in your allowance to pay for a ticket to go to the movies and we were influenced by you know some of the uh largesse of the 90s uh movies you know we grew up watching independence day and mortal Kombat and con air and these you know these were movies that were extraordinarily 90s and when we're going to talk a little bit about Michael Bay, but you talk about a guy who was the right man for the right time in movie making. Michael Bay is, in my opinion, the quintessential 90s movies movie maker. And I think part of the reason he was so successful is because the sensibilities of movie making at that time, in terms of, you know, I, I would say more pop culture movies, fit his style of movie making perfectly. So we did a quick review of of some of the movies he made early in his career, as in as early as it gets in his movie making career. So in ninety, uh, I believe ninety four or ninety five, he starts with Bad Boys One. Uh, then he moves to The Rock in ninety six, and then he makes this movie in ninety eight. And these are his first three feature films, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, before that, he was a you know a, a a video music director or a music video director, excuse me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, talk about coming out of uh, coming out swinging with these three, these three movies. It's, I think that is where most of the derision comes from in Armageddon because you noted in, in the, and I didn't realize this until we started talking. We were actually talking about Michael Bay's career, and I mistakenly said he directed Con Air. And then you looked it up and said, no, he didn't. It was Simon West, I believe. Like it was, but, but I think we just, the, the whole, like even Face Off, I imagine a lot of people don't realize that, you know, lump that in. And like, you know, you think of Nicolas Cage, you think of, uh, you think of this movie, Bruce Willis. You think of like those '90s action stars, and Michael Bay is just the first name that comes to mind. But he only, like you said, he only did these three movies, and they're all pretty good movies. Like he has the the style that came to define him: this annoying, aggressive, uh, swirling cameras, ridiculous bullshit. Like it, that that became the Michael Bay staple. It's all there, but it's not as overwrought as it came to be, you know, like those movies are ridiculous in a lot of ways, but they're also relatively grounded and they're regular sort of people doing regular sort of things. Like they're not grandiose. They're certainly not transformers. And like, it is a Michael Bay before he became the cliche easily, you know, made fun of Michael Bay that came to define the two thousands. Like these are, these are, those are three we described. I think especially this one are good, solid action movies that we love for a reason. We don't love them because they're campy. We don't love them because they're jokes. We love them because they're pretty damn good. And I just think we look back on this era and that director in particular and act like it was bad or dumb or silly. And I think if you sit down and watch this admittedly very long film, it's really not that way at all. Like it takes time to develop its characters. 
it, you know, it, it moves from plot point to plot point with, you know, as silly as the plot points might be, it goes from A to B to C to D to E with like logic behind all of it. Like it's a very little thing, very few things come out of left field. Very few things feel ridiculous. Like it's a, it's a young, it's weird to call him young, but he was, cause you, I, I don't think of him this way, but it was a young director who seemed to t- have, you know, care and time into plotting his dumb movies out and having them make some semblance of sense. Yeah, and I, I do want to make a point about, uh, again, just kind of 90s movies in general. And you look at it uh, from a standpoint of um, even the movies that were winning Best Picture at the Oscars. I'm going to go back to the 80s, the decade prior. The types of movies winning Oscars at that time for Best Picture, The Deer Hunter, Kramer vs. Kramer, Ordinary People, Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, Terms of Endearment, Amadeus, Out of Africa, Platoon, The Last Emperor, and Rain Man. And then we jump to the 90s, and there is a a real distinct switch in the types of movies winning Best Picture. So we have Dances with Wolves in 91, we have Silence of the Lambs in 92, Unforgiven in 93, Schindler's List in 94, Forrest Gump in 95, Braveheart in 96, The English Patient in 97, Titanic in 98, Shakespeare in Love in 99. And you think about these movies that are winning Best Picture in the 90s, about half of those movies are things that I don't think would have even gotten a nomination back in the 80s or even later in the 2000s when we're seeing movies like Moonlight and Birdman, 12 Years a Slave, uh, The Hurt Locker, things of that nature, No Country for Old Men. There is a distinct uh, character to these movies winning Best Picture in the 90s they're big. They're loud. They cut right to the uh, the emotional uh, center of the audience. Uh, the you know the story behind it, the hidden meanings, uh, the symbolism within the story. That kind of takes a back seat to what audience or audiences are feeling in, in the experience or the roller coaster of watching the movie. And I think looking at that compared to the decade before and then the two decades after is a real indication of how this movie of Armageddon and, again, Bad Boys, The Rock, really found uh, the perfect decade to be made, or should I say the decade allowed these movies to be made. Yeah, it's a great point. That 90s run was certainly interesting and <laughs> kind of weird. And, yeah, it's not was not about subtext. It was not about you know, necessarily sitting down and pondering what the movie meant. It was pretty much hitting you in the face for moment one. And everyone seemed okay with that. And they're not bad movies per se. Like, as much as people deride something like Forrest Gump, I don't think Forrest Gump is a bad movie. I just think you have to know what you're in for when you watch it, you know? Like, it's going to be... It's what it is, you know? It's 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 a little problematic. It's a little curious. And it's on the nose, to say the least. But it's entertaining. And it's fine. And, like, it really... It, did, it does feel like a decade looking back where... You know, at least from like uh, the people making movies and a lot of people reviewing movies and a lot of people seeing movies, everyone was doing kind of okay. You know, there weren't a lot of, I think people weren't, you know, at least Americans in particular weren't suffering through a ton of hardships. You know, I think like movie going came easy. Stories were expected to be easy. We were rewarded things for being a little easy. Like no one needed to be hit over the head in a artistic way or in a moral way. Like everyone was pretty fine with movies. And I think Armageddon, definitely fits into that oeuvre for sure where it's an action movie that is not nothing unexpected happens there's no twists and turns that you wouldn't see coming like we were talking you know a lot of what we talked about when we were you know in the middle watching this movie today is you know in 1998 when we saw this in theaters it might have felt 
unique and exciting and intriguing to 13-year-old us because that's our age and we saw it. We were like, what's going to happen next? Ooh, is, is Ben Affleck going to die? Is Bruce Willis going to die? Are they going to make it out? When you see it now as adults, it's, it's extremely obvious what's going to happen next in every scene. But in the 90s, it just it followed a pretty steady blueprint and it did all the things you expected an action movie to do and it did them all really well. And I think that is something that, you know, for, for many reasons gets ignored or derided these days. But from when it came and, and for how well it does things, it, it uh, it's pretty picture perfect, I would say. You know, we discussed uh, watching this a few minutes ago. This movie still sticks out in my mind from the, th- from the initial theater experience I had. This is on my list of movies I saw three times in the theaters back in the 90s, <laughs> uh, along with movies such as Mortal Kombat, Congo... Uh, what else did I say? Second Mortal Kombat reference episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe the last one, but still Inde- I love that I got two. Independence Day, another Independence Day uh, uh, shout out. Uh, but I remember the, the theater going experience of this movie was was quite exquisite. Uh, the It's a loud movie. It's a bright movie. The, the effects still hold up today. We just watched it in HD on a, a widescreen TV. And the effects are excellent even now. Um, and so... I think one of the things that makes this movie work uh, from when we're 13 to when we're 33, 34, 35 years old is that it's still an exciting movie and the effects hold up well. I totally agree. And I think a lot of the movies you just named, as much as I enjoy them, speaking specifically, let's say say Independence Day. I have seen Independence Day recently. It does not hold up well. Like, it is... It's fine, you. It, but it's, it's definitely the kind of movie where you look back to being 10, 12 years old and you think like, man, when I was 12, I see why this was really cool. I see why the aliens are cool. I see why I ignored this plot point. But it's not a good movie. But I think there are some movies from the 90s that really do hold up. Men in Black is one, I would say, that weirdly holds up. It, it, I think you, it's easy to lump that in with Independence Day, but it's just that's a good movie with great acting and a real simple plot that just doesn't do anything crazy and is like well thought out and clearly like they knew again how they were getting from A to B to C to D. And I think that's another, that's where Armageddon, you would, I think it's easy to think of as an Independence Day. It's big, it's dumb. You remember the speeches, you remember the grandiose elements, and the other parts are stupid. But I don't think that's the case. I think that is an unfair alignment of this movie. And I think if you watch it again, you're like, like you said, not only do the effects hold up pretty well, given that it was, what, 30, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, but... It, I think the the plot holds up as well. It's just it does not because it doesn't get overwrought. It doesn't try like there the parts that are stupid are stupid because there are leaps of faith within the movie. You know, it's like why would you turn drillers into astronauts? But that's a that's like a plot point within the film. It's not like an incomprehensible stupid thing outside of them. You know, it's like it makes you think and it sort of takes you out of the movie, but it's not it's not like Michael Bay and the screenwriters didn't think about that beforehand. It's just like one of the silly things you buy into when you watch the movie. And I think that what Armageddon does well as a film is it thinks, okay, you're here, how do you get here, how do you get here, how do you get here? That plus some good effects and some great acting make it a sort of timeless film that really does hold up in 2020. Yeah, and I think... Again, the, the final point I'll make about it, it's setting being a, a 90s film, is I think the two uh, components of a lot of these 90s action films are that they cash in on emotion and charisma. Uh, you, could, you, know, you can say that Independence Day's effects don't hold up 22 years later. You can't deny the fact that that movie is buoyed by emotion and charisma. The Rock is buoyed by emotion and charisma. Uh, somehow Michael Bay was able to convince 
very famous actors at the time, whether it's in this movie, um, you know, a Bruce Willis that's coming off of one of the hottest action runs of any actor in the history of Hollywood. Um, or in The Rock, he's somehow able to convince Ed Harris and Sean Connery to be part of this very flawed plot lined, <laughs> but super fun and exciting movie in The Rock. Um, it really is a formula that, that worked perfectly in a lot of these movies in the 90s that I think this particular movie exemplifies um, you know, 22 years later. And I think a really good comparison there is Deep Impact. That was another movie that came out the same year. It's one of those easy comparisons. It's like a volcano and Dante's Peak. Everyone always says, you know, are you a volcano? People don't always say this, but it's been said in the past, do you like Volcano or do you like Dante's Peak? Six people have said that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe six. Six, Maybe less. Not even six. More people have said, are you an Armageddon person or are you a Deep Impact person? Only, But but that's also a very simple answer. But but I think it, it belies why this one matters because Deep Impact has you know a very similar plot you know uh, like if you if you were to show a non-caring objective observer the plots of the movies and like the basic elements or the trailers even they'd be like oh these are the same fucking movie like you know a tentacle daily and from independence day for example yeah if we had shown them yes. <laughs> the screenplay of both they'd say these are the same films why are we even splitting hairs here but Deep Impact came and went, and no one cared about it. There was one memorable scene where Taylor Leone and her father are being crushed by a giant tidal wave, and otherwise, it's a pretty standard film. Like it doesn't, it didn't have the star power, but it had Morgan Freeman it had a lot. Like it, it wasn't like there was not packed with occasional stars there, but it didn't have the same resonance. It didn't have the same care. It just it felt like one of those action movies that comes and goes. Whereas Armageddon has had staying power, you know, debatable staying power, certainly not beloved by everybody, but of, of the two for sure. And like indicative of that period, like, again, we listed off a whole bunch of movies that were fun at the time and made a lot of money. Do, are they all still being, you know, discussed or cared about today? No, only how many of them have criterion collections? Not very many. One of them is Armageddon. So it certainly stands out in that regard. I, and I do think that's an excellent comp for this movie, not just because at the time it was the comp for the movie, which was, uh, you know, separated by maybe six months back in 1998. But when you look at the cast of Deep Impact, they were going for a almost a prestige type cast. You know, Bruce Willis is an action star, but Morgan Freeman and Robert Duvall are Oscar winning actors. Uh, <laughs> and they even got pre Frodo Baggins, Frodo Baggins. Um and and I even remember the aesthetic of that movie being very different. The 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 way that the spaceship looked inside looked like footage that you would see from a real NASA launch. They're all in the white spacesuits. Uh, it seems all very sterile. And you compare that to the aesthetic of the spaceship in Armageddon, and it's a rock and roll video. It's a video game. It's what we think uh, a spaceship might look like in the middle of an action scene. And There was no real attempt to make this realistic, in my opinion. Uh, I think there's there's very loose uh, connections to pseudoscience uh, in this movie. There's just enough reference to science in Armageddon to grease the skids (laughs) so that you can continue to pass through the movie without thinking too damn much. Uh, But I I think it's a very interesting uh, difference between the two movies and why one was a more successful movie at the time and has more staying power than the other. Absolutely. Well, let's get into the movie itself. Let's get into the plot of Armageddon because it's I really want to hammer home some of the points we're talking about how about how it does 
take care and time to develop itself and to despite these you know like you said the pseudoscience and the silliness and like the the clear plays to a more broad audience to be a sort of you know tech cool tech action movie but then also has some substance to it like one thing that we noted while we're watching it today was so we open with a lot of sort of plot building we open with a lot of the, we open with the you know little mini asteroids coming down upon Earth, specifically in New York. There's a scene with Eddie Griffin and Mark Curry, two of the few uh, black actors in the movie besides Michael Clark Duncan. But <laughs> they get they get a few minutes in the start, and a lot of Billy Bob Thornton. You get to meet him as as uh, Dan Truman in NASA headquarters, and you get before Bruce Willis. There's there's 13 minutes of screen time before Bruce Willis gets into the movie. So there's 13 minutes showing you the effects of the asteroids, showing you how NASA responds, showing you how the world is sort of responding to some extent, and then they finally you know cut to Bruce Willis. And I think there's there's a it's weird to say, but there's a restraint there that a lot of movies wouldn't show. Like you have Bruce Willis, like you said, one of the biggest stars of the 80s and 90s, and you keep him off screen for 13 minutes. There are probably a lot of mouth breathers in the audience going, "Hey, where's Bruce Willis? Isn't Bruce?" Willis in this movie like why isn't he here why isn't he here and then he pops up and it's great but like the movie you know doesn't let a Bruce Willis uh subjugate the plot or the story it does like again it's, a, it's sort of weird to say and like but it really doesn't like it takes time to say like this is a fucked up scenario people are dying like the, it establishes the threat before it establishes the characters and I think that is a a nice little plot element that not a lot of action movies were employing at that point but interestingly you know, you said it takes time. It kind of does and it kind of doesn't. We timed it. It took 12 minutes. To 12, a- but 12 minutes is not a short... Like that's no, no, not- I, I, I get your point. But in 12 minutes... You could tell you know the entire plot of this yes, movie. that's true. Yes, yes, they're, you know they're the economical state. with yes. their twelve minutes. Yeah, they're not just meandering through. And they're they're 12, doing a good job. And it was an entertaining twelve minutes. It yeah. wasn't just twelve minutes. of You weren't waiting for Bruce Willis to show up. You were yeah. like, "This is fine. This is yeah. scary. Like, oh, the world's gonna end. Like, who's gonna save us? Oh, it's Bruce Willis." Yeah. But by the end of twelve minutes, you could say uh, with certainty there's an asteroid the size of Texas barreling towards Earth, and when it strikes us. It will eliminate all life on Earth, and we have 18 days to prevent this from happening. Boom. The entire plot. 12 minutes. Now we spend the next, what, hour, hour and a half of the movie introducing characters that dive into the pool of this plot. And it actually takes uh, quite a bit of patience and time to introduce these characters and give each one of these characters, no matter how minor at least a sliver of background so that you do feel invested in each one of these characters. So... Let's review really quick how this plot plays out, and then we'll go into the characters. Uh, so we, we learn again at 12 minutes, massive asteroid coming, end all life on Earth. And all we know is that there is a fault line lying 800 feet within the asteroid that if we place a nuclear weapon inside of it, it will blow the fault line, split the asteroid in two, and send the two shards on either side of the Earth, thus preventing the end of the world. And how do you get the nuclear weapon 800 feet into the asteroid, Steve? You get drillers. You drill. You cut to the core of the asteroid with a big old spinny, pointy thing. And then you put a bomb down there, and then you don't die. And what does the movie take no more than 70 to 80 seconds 
telling us <laughs> that it's easier to train drillers to be astronauts than it is to train astronauts to fucking drill. <laughs> Which is the most off-derided part of the movie. And if you've seen the Ben Affleck commentary that's on YouTube and other places, he, you know, pokes fun at the ridiculousness of this plot and basically says, Michael Bay told us to just fucking go with it, so we're going with it, and that's fine. But what? <laughs> but it's not... But it's. I, I, again, I will argue, and I don't think you're going to disagree with me, but I'll argue to any the haters out there that it's oh, the haters, yeah. within the within the plot of the film. It's fine, like it to, like you you understand what the movie is going for. Like logically, outside of the plot of the film, there's no going into space seems incredibly hard, and you, people train for decades to like have the mathematical and physical and you know any sort of ability to be able to pull that off. They, they, you know, part of Bruce Willis's crew is a big, giant, fat guy named Max, and they let the 300-pound guy go into space. Like, that's not a thing. They would say, no, no, you can bring Owen Wilson, who's fit, and Ben Affleck, who's fit, but you leave the big, fat guy at home. But, you know, but, but the, and the crux of the movie is just they need the drillers, and the drillers are fun, the drillers are exciting. What I loved the most, though, about that scene is when you're initially introduced to the astronauts, when you meet the initial crew that Dan Truman, played by Billy Bob Thornton, is showing Bruce Willis as Harry Stamper, he's saying, these are your astronauts. It's these frumpy-ass, like, <laughs> dudes with mustaches, all these bookish types, like, who've never lifted a weight in their lives. Yeah, like, super out of shape. When in reality, <laughs> astronauts are, like, the 0.001 percentile human beings on planet Earth. They are the <laughs> smartest, most athletic, most resilient, most mentally tough human beings on planet Earth. And they they put up a bunch of fucking dads. <laughs> and when you meet the astronaut, the crew later that does go into space with him, they're all these big old hunks and this super tough-ass woman who doesn't take shit from anybody. And you're like, okay, this is the actual... Ast- these are astronauts. I like, mean, they give us William Fitchner. In there. Yeah, William Fitchner is one of the most... T- looks like a badass as hell. Yeah. As Colonel Willie Sharp. We'll get to Colonel Willie Sharp later. But, yeah, the movie does, it, like, it hits home in a, like, sort of silly way that you cannot go forward on this mission without Harry Stamper and his crew. But our, our, at that point when we meet Harry Stamper and his crew, Ben Affleck, Owen Wilson, Steve Buscemi, all those crew, we, we've been introduced to them in a very 90s kind of scene where Harry Stamper, Bruce Willis, finds out that A.J. Ben Affleck is having sex with his daughter, Grace. And his response to that is, you know, his daughter is a grown woman, can make her own choices, but rather than allow her to make her own choices, he gets a big shotgun and starts shooting at him across the, the oil derrick that with all these moving parts and flammable items and, and like, human beings and human beings who could be shot. And it's played 100% for laughs. Like, how dare this guy fuck this girl without his father's permission? And it's like, not that that's limited to the 90s, but I feel like that might have been the last decade where you could hit that point so broadly and be like, isn't it funny how the dad wants to kill the daughter's suitor like aren't you guys laughing like it just it it feels so silly in 2020 unabashedly with no concern that there will be any sort of backlash to that storyline the 90s probably were the last time (laughs) you could get away with that kind of humor and it, it really is something that would not fly nowadays the idea of a father owning his daughter's his adult daughter's sexuality in a way that allows him to murder another human being being for sleeping with her in a consensual way that would never fly nowadays. And then the, the best part that we noticed this time watching it is that literally minutes after 
chasing him around a human-populated oil rig with flammable material uh, coursing through it with a shotgun. He then tells him, "You could have." He tells AJ, "You could have gotten people killed today. You're fired." <laughs> the irony of that statement is not lost on the two hosts today. I promise you. <laughs> Uh, it's sort of it's silly again, but it's it's silly in a I would call it a productive way for lack of a better term. It's silly in that it does establish what the screenwriters and there's a lot of screenwriters in this movie. This was written by it's credited to Jonathan Hensley and J.J. Abrams, but I know there are a ton of other people who did passes on it, including Tony Gilroy, who ended up doing Michael Clayton, um, Shane Salerno. There's just there's a ton of other right. Robert Town apparently did a little bit of a pass on it. Like it was all over the place. It was written by many many people. But yeah, but but I but you know again to to tie it broadly to the time and the place, it's not. What they do isn't bad. It's just very broad. Like, broad is the best way I can describe it. It's broad. It's easy. It's enjoyable. But what I like about it is it does, like we said, it does also take the time to establish the character. Specifically, Will Patton's Chick. So Chick is a great character. Chick is basically Harry Stamper's second in command. He is, you know, his rock. He's his buddy. He's always there to help him out. And he is a credited fifth. He's really probably gets the sixth or seventh most screen time in the movie. But to this movie's credit, almost everyone who is prominently in the movie has some sort of backstory, some sort of extra scenes, at least a scene or two about them almost entirely. They have something going for them that fleshes them out beyond just being Bruce Willis' second in command. Chick in particular. Like, Chick arguably has, down the line in this movie, some of the most emotional scenes involving his ex-wife and his child who doesn't know who he is. Like, they're beautiful moments. They're tear-inducing moments. And... That is a care that so many movies would not show to its fifth, sixth, seventh lead. And they and, and not only that, but Will Patton is like plays Chick as a very reasonable human being. Like he's calm, he's cool, he's collected, he has some good lines. Like nothing about him is cartoonish or grandiose. Like some characters are for sure, but they like there are six, seven characters in this movie who like exist beyond being you know, cardboard cutouts or just on paper, whatever, stereotypes, caricatures. Like, that's just, the, that's not a thing you see in many action movies, especially from this era where you're allowed to have two leads and everyone else is sort of just paint by numbers. So getting back for a moment to the absurdity of the plot points here and how you kind of have to walk into this movie with full acceptance of these absurdities to enjoy this movie appropriately. This is like... When you go to a bachelor party in New Orleans and you all decide to dress up like wrestlers from the 1980s. <laughs> As we all and, do. <laughs> and somebody has the idea that we're going to do a lot of undisclosed drugs and just see what happens. There's that one guy that's thinking, this is not going to turn out well. The idea of dressing up as wrestlers and doing drugs doesn't make any sense. Why would we do this? That guy can go fuck himself. <laughs> when you walk into this movie... You are putting on <laughs> you are putting on the Sergeant Slaughter outfit. You are doing mushrooms and or cocaine and you're walking out into Voodoo Fest in the middle of New Orleans. That's what you accept when you watch this movie. And I think that tone is pretty clear again from pretty early on. Like with the broadness and the silliness and just like there there is a very legitimate sense that this is a big dumb movie, like you know, in a lot of ways. But 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 again, big dumb movies don't have to be poorly plotted and unable to get from A to B to C. They can be big and dumb and easy to consume and grandiose and silly, 
but they can be well done. They can be well made. They can have good effects. They can have clearly time and thought and care put into them. And I think that's what separates this in a lot of ways is this is, you know, again, speaking just about the characters in particular, like I think character development is something a lot of big dumb movies ignore because no one expects a big dumb movie to have six well-developed characters. That's just not a prerequisite for that. Like, this is an asteroid movie. You can make a space asteroid movie with no well-developed characters and probably, if your goal is to make money, you can probably make some money. But the people who put Armageddon together to their credit realize, like, what well, you know, let's do it. Let's let's have these characters matter and care. Like, let's, let's let you be able to remember their names after the movie. You know, I feel like that's a good calling card for a lot of movies. If you see a movie and you only remember three characters' names... You might like it, but it's not a good, well-told movie. It's just a big, dumb, stupid one. This one, you you remember a lot of people's names because they all have some a defining characteristic, not only as a silly caricature, but as like with a little bit of depth or intrigue to them that is just lacking otherwise. Yeah, there's there's kind of this trust uh, that that Michael Bay and the the producers of the movie ask you to have, in that if you are willing to suspend your logic to a certain degree, there is a payoff to this. And as Steve's alluding to, I think one of the payoffs is you're going to fall in love with these characters. Uh, not only are you going to love them for their humor and the banter that goes on between them and uh, kind of the charisma that they all exude, but also there are some real emotional payoffs to these characters once you take that leap of suspending your logic uh, for the duration of the movie. <laughs> uh, but I, I couldn't agree more with the... Chick being the perfect example of, uh, you know, maybe the sixth most important character in this film who has a scene that makes me cry every time I watch this movie. Uh, it's before they take off for their mission and he goes to what we assume is his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend's uh, house. And within 10 seconds of dialogue, you understand that this is a uh, very, very bad relationship that went poorly and it was his fault. Whatever he did, it was his fault. He doesn't know his son. His son doesn't know him. And the mother of his child makes it clear that he's not welcome at this home. And again, the scene can't be more than, what, 45 seconds, one minute long that they give to Chick. But by the end of it, uh, when he gives the, his, the mother of his child's, uh, the, he gives the mother of his child the space shuttle uh, toy space shuttle and says you might just be proud of me my goodness in 60 seconds for the sixth most important character in the movie that's a real heavy emotional payoff uh, for what should be a throwaway character uh, but they actually take the time to make you invested in this guy in a guy that's also as we can see in little short snip uh, bits he's flawed um, he is a sinner and I, I just I don't think there's a lot of movies out there that can give you that kind of payoff for this seemingly minor of a character, which is why we give Chick the Sixth Man of the Year award <laughs> on this podcast. He is the Sixth Man. We're establishing new awards for characters, at least for Armageddon. Perhaps we'll extrapolate it out for other films. This is one of the great. <laughs> this is going to be one of the great points of contention. I am pro giving awards out on this podcast. But there's plenty of awards to come. And Steve this, is trying to stop me. Chick might win more awards. There's a non, we're going to get to a, more awards later on for Steve, sure. Steve, is it fair to say that Chick is the Jamal Crawford of this movie? He has to be, or the Lou Williams, or, or the Lou know, Williams. Yeah, more modern take the <laughs> Lou right. Williams. Of this movie. The Tony Kukoc, <laughs> giving it a 90s reference, yep. the Tony Kukoc of this movie is Chick. Sure is. And to your points, in those scenes where we like Chick so much, 
it, the movie doesn't make him out to be a good guy. They accept his flaws and they say, you know, and he basically says, like, I might redeem myself, as you said. And he does. And it's not because he becomes a better person necessarily. He just participates in a very selfless act. And it's to the movie's immense credit that they do not make anyone in really anyone in the plot at all like if they're bad at the start or shaky they don't make them suddenly a better person there's no like oh i've learned a lesson from saving the earth and i'm gonna be maybe we'd get there someday but as as we see them in the two and a half hours of the movie if they're lukewarm or bad or you know whatever that's where they probably end up at the end of the day they've just done a really good deed you know and it's enough to earn them credibility with their loved ones and peers but they no one undergoes some crazy catharsis you know no one is like i am suddenly transformed and that's great like that's a very that there's restraint there that again a lot of movies i think would not show which i really really like i will say before we get too deep into the other the the uh quieter darker elements this movie there's a there there are a lot of scenes in this movie that are stupid like there are a lot of scenes that could be cut in particular in the first like say maybe hour 15 or so which is the like heavily comical part it's like the as we said the introducing the the people getting to know everybody there there are scenes where there's like you could cut 20 minutes there's a whole like scene where everyone's getting a physical a mental and physical breakdown of their health and like it's played for laughs and it's kind of funny i guess but you've already met the characters at that point you've already met who they are you know their deal and you're just like, like i don't know it just felt very overdone like it's it, it's basically my point is like i'm not saying this is a perfect film by any means like it is flawed but i think to me a lot of the best movies can be flawed in some way. They can have 20 minutes to kind of stink, but the parts that stand out really do stand out. And I think one of the things the first half does really well is establish all of these characters, again, that we talked about, and this deep cast that all ends up being really good and having some depth to them that m- most of the movies wouldn't offer. I love, I just love, that they double down on <laughs> how illogical it is that they would ever send these people into space. So <laughs> they want you to believe they would send a bunch of drillers into space within 18 days. Okay, I'm going to get past that. I'm going to believe in this movie regardless of that. And then Michael Bay's like, no, dog, you're not done. <laughs> We're going to show you in this movie how inept and inadequate, both physically, mentally, and psychologically, <laughs> that these people are to go into space. And guess what? You're still going to buy it. <laughs> We're going to hammer it home to the nth degree, and you're going to be like, okay, this is overdone. And you're still going to be like, but I, yeah, yeah, sure. I, oh, man. Michael Clark Duncan in a Speedo dancing in a you know nurse's office? Like, they, sign me up. Yeah. They had the option to just kind of blow by it and say, you know, and in our minds in the movie, we would have 10 seconds of being like, wait, that doesn't make any goddamn sense. And then we keep moving so quickly that our minds never stick to that point. But they didn't choose that route. They instead decided to keep hammering it home that these guys are buffoons, have no business in the space program, and it would absolutely make more sense to teach astronauts to drill. <laughs> but Michael Bay challenges you further to say, no, no, no. I refuse to listen to that logical part of my brain, and I'm on this ride for good. <laughs> and look, they did put together a very good cast to pull this off there. Bruce Willis is at his late 90s handsomest we were talking about how so many other movie stars you know got hair transplants or clearly did something to maintain their their locks as they started falling off bruce willis is going bald in this and maybe a little bit of a comb forward type deal but mostly is just a cool looking handsome bald guy with a great five o'clock shadow you got ben affleck as aj who's really good young ben affleck you got the aforementioned billy bob as dan truman you got will Patton as chuck as 
Will Patton as Chick. We talked about him. You got Steve Buscemi as Rockhound, the horniest person in the movie. So horny. Horny to like a distracting degree, constantly bringing up how he wants to fuck people or how how old people are. Can he fuck them or is he allowed to? Like, Yeah, the, the idea of statutory rape is front and center <laughs> with uh, Rockhound storyline. <laughs> But then you got uh, Owen Wilson, who's in the, you know, appropriately in the in the funny half of the movie as Oscar. You got Michael Clark Duncan, rest in peace, as Bear. Like, they're all great. There's, like, everyone in this movie. And then you got other people. You got Keith David. You got Peter Stormare coming up soon. Jason Isaacs in a really great role. Like, everyone, there, it's just, it's a very well-cast movie. There, uh, the, the, the silly characters are cast with entertaining people. The characters who need gravitas, like Billy Bob and Keith David, bring that gravitas. Like, th- there is, there's a healthy mix of everybody. Like, it really is a, not a diverse cast, per se. It's a lot of white folk with not a lot of women, to say the least. Like, Liv Tyler, we haven't even mentioned Liv Tyler, really the only woman of note in the entire movie. But... You know, the rest of the cast, you know, you know, despite their lack of diversity, is very good at what they do. This falls into the the, the casting falls into the category of uh, reasons why we should enjoy this movie in the 90s, because it would never have been made in 2020. (laughs) Uh, One of the big things is we noted watching it this time that even in the NASA Situation Room, there are no women in that room. Not a one. Only one is Liv Tyler. Yep. Who does not work for NASA? Who's there to be an emotional woman? Who's getting real, understandably, you know, fired up, but but still just there to yell and scream and cry. Within the two shuttles being sent up to the asteroid, the human population is approximately fifty percent female. Exactly one of the crew members is female uh, in the two shuttles being sent up to the asteroid. A very serious flaw in the movie and a a reason why this movie would be rethought or not made the same way in 2020. And it's certainly a flaw that that Steve and I would agree with uh, the idea of remaking it. (laughs) Oh, sure. (laughs) Well, we can talk about that at the end. I don't know if I want I mean... Oh, no, I don't want a remake of of Armageddon. (laughs) But we recognize fully that this is a flaw in the movie that is only permissible. Yes, because of its time and place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. This would not be permissible nowadays. No, certainly not. We would raise an eyebrow at the very least. But I will say, as we get into the second half of the movie, once they sort of go into space, there's a great scene where all of the characters in their flight suits are walking over to the spacecraft, and the world at that point has found out that these asteroids are coming and they're going to kill us all. And there's just, the score by Trevor Rabin is just, is great in that moment. Like, there are, it is super deep and grandiose and important and exciting. And, like, it's, so, we mentioned this before, but this is a very America-centric movie. Like, it's... It, you can debate whether it hits you over the head with it or not, but it, the, the, the subcurrent the entire time is America is great. We're tackling this asteroid on our own. We don't really need anybody's help. Like, we'll get one Russian guy sort of by necessity later on in the movie, but in reality, we're just sending them some ships up and we're going to take care of it, world. Like, just sit back and allow America to handle things. But the score, I will say, is one of the weird things is there is a little bit of like a world music element to it. Like, there's a, there are a lot of scenes. Not great scenes, but like you know, but but fit, like the world is is waiting and watching as American heroes go save the day, and the score is weirdly appropriate for that element. But it sort of does just add to the general idea. I mean, Trevor Raymond did a great job, but I think the score is amazing. But it does sort of add to the general idea that like the world watches with uh, apprehension as a bunch of white heroes from the United States flying in a big ship and save the day. 
So there's two points to to respond to that you just brought up. The first being the score, and I think the score carries a disproportionate weight of uh, of the emotional impact of this movie. And I say that in a good way. I, I think the score is perfect for the, the film, but it is also just like the movie. It's simple. It's uh, one cannot say this is a complex score. This isn't like a Trent Reznor scored movie. <laughs> uh, but it is perfect for what is being done and what is being asked of the audience in the movie. The, the second part about this being a blatantly America-centric movie, just, just think about this for a moment. There's maybe, what, a half dozen to ten uh, countries in the world that have some semblance of a space program that could conceivably help us, me, us being the United States, uh, save the world from annihilation. We decide, no, 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 no. We're not going to tell anybody anything. <laughs> we're going to send... There will be world panic. We can't yeah, tell anybody. We're not going to tell any... We're not going to tell the Indians, the Chinese, the French, nobody that has a space program that can conceivably send more shuttles, more supplies, help us in any way. We're not going to tell them anything until we absolutely have to. We're going to send up two shuttles called the Freedom and the Independence. <laughs> and we're going to show multiple scenes of the rest of the world prostrate watching the sky as america fucking handles this yeah and they make it very as we noted previously as you noted that the asteroid is the size of texas that <laughs> is perfect huge it's perfect. they send two ships they could send 15 20 30 ships if they have the ability to do so like they could send every spaceship ever made and on just the planet. and just roll the dice let's see who gets there everyone has nuclear weapons too let's send let's send 50 ships with 50 bombs on them and everybody drill and let's all see who makes it but no no america america says nah dog you stay home we're gonna send the freedom and the independence <laughs> and again we'll take one russian man and we'll bring one woman and yeah, that's it. Yeah. And otherwise, white dudes and Michael Clark Duncan are going to save the day. And the, the Russian guy is basically pumping our gas. <laughs> and being backwater and hitting things with a wrench. Yeah, and exactly. That yeah. works half the time. He's good at hitting things with a wrench, but he's not, like, scientific. He's just a crazy old man. Wearing a Soviet star t-shirt, like, red <laughs> yeah. Soviet star t-shirt when they board the <laughs> space station. Oh, it is. Again, the 90s elements in this are so pronounced. Like... It's it's subtle, like maybe not subtle, but it is not. It's I've seen plenty of terrible action movies that are like rah rah America. This is this is rah rah America at its in its bones. You know, it's not rah rah America on the skin, but it's rah rah. But everything about it underlying is like we're great, we're doing a great job. Don't worry, we got it. Like America's cool, America's good. They plant an American flag. On the asteroid. Yeah. Not necessary. <laughs> They're blowing why? it up. It's going to blow why up. Why do we need to do that? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so as we get towards the end of this movie, it does, there is a noticeable shift in a good way from freewheeling, fun, good times to big, scary rock. Everyone's in trouble. And they emphasize that, you know, again, another point to, to add to our reason to send more ships on the way to the asteroid, one of the ships crashes and kills half the people, and only the famous actors on the ship survive, curiously enough. But another, another point to send 15 ships, and, you know, maybe half them make it, and you get eight <laughs> ships up there. But regardless, it does get, uh, maybe not appropriately dark, but it does sort of like, it, it changes the tone in a very smart way to like, okay, let's see what happens now. And... They're there, and they're drilling, and 
there is, you know, a very important and I think very illustrative to the plot scare where there's tension between what's happening back home and what's happening on the asteroid. Specifically, where it seems like they're not going to be able to drill deep enough. And so the people back at NASA, specifically the important, you know, presidential type folk and generals want to blow up the bomb. And that leads to the real emergence of Colonel Willie Sharp. We haven't talked about Colonel Willie Sharp a ton, played by William Fickner, amazing character actor, been working for a ton of time, and is unbelievable in this. And he has sort of been a by-the-books regular dude up to this point. But then there's a wonderful scene where he decides, you know, he fulfills his duty as a, as a member of the armed forces to carry out his orders and blow up the bomb, despite, you know, regardless of where it is and how deep they are and all of that. And... It really does, it might not be the first tearjerker scene, but it is like a truly emotional sort of moment. Like you start getting a sense of like who this guy is and you start getting a sense of like this is a desolate wasteland up there and they, you know, they're going to have to start making big choices. And Bruce Willis in his beautiful persuasiveness, you know, convinces William Fickner to, uh, to hold off on blowing them all to bits. I think your love of both... William Fickner as an actor and Colonel Willie Sharp as a character is analogous to Robert De Niro's obsession with Sybil Shepard in Taxi Driver. <laughs> my dad is hopefully listening out there. He, we are both big Willie Sharp fans. So that's his favorite scene in the movie. It's my, I mean, we'll get to our favorite scene in the movie, but it involves Willie Sharp in detail. He's great. I just love how, good. I love how he is, you know, I think it's just a really good, I think, and I think one thing the movie does really well is it sets up circumstances where though he is a clearly committed member of the armed forces, he, the, the, the circumstances surrounding him compel him to disobey his duty. Like, this bomb is going to go off, whether they're, they put it in the hole or not. There's clearly turmoil. The bomb is going on and off at the same time. Like, there's just, there's, things are not good. Things are fucked up. And I think that is justification in a very small but profound way that allows you to believe that, yeah, this guy would betray his sort of duty. This guy would, would say, no thank you, Keith David, general back at home. I'm going to just let this drilling dude finish his job as opposed to follow my mandated orders well it's interesting this scene and you know the the dynamic of that character of of colonel willie sharp it illustrates one of the biggest themes of this movie i think in general which is it's kind of this disregard of expertise it's disregard (laughs) of um or or valuing certain like like blue collar expertise or regular expertise over like uh mandated expertise I, I, i would even i would take the word expertise out of it and just say faith you you disregard the the common expertise of people who have created protocols that work when the world is as we expect it to be but when something like a rock the size of the state of texas is hurling at the united or excuse me hurling at the world <laughs> you've already seen they brainwashed you <laughs> oh no the united states is in peril <laughs> And only us, and maybe there are other countries. Thank God those other uh, asteroids only hit Shanghai and Paris. No harm done there. Which are totally obliterated in this movie. Like, that's a... Millions of people. We don't rely on that too much. They're all dead. Two of the world's great cities are in ruins. And and the movie treats it as a phew moment. (laughs) Thank God Houston is okay. Thank God. Thank God it's just the densely populated areas of Shanghai and Paris. And not Chicago. You know? But anyway, there, there is kind of this, this concept in a movie that men like Willie Sharp, uh, men like uh, the, the Air Force general down on, and the president back on Earth, they are attacking this problem with the sensibilities of, 
of a normal world, of a world that has conventional problems. And that when an unconventional or catastrophic problem presents itself that doesn't necessarily play by the rules that governed the protocols that had been created, you have to rely on people um, you have to rely on people's courage, you have to rely on people's ingenuity, and you have to have some level of faith in you know the talent of the hu- of human beings uh, and human beings' ability to improvise. And so I think Willie Sharp's conversion through the uh, hard persuasion of Bruce Willis strangling him, <laughs> <laughs> with an un, with a uh, very generic metal object within the, the spaceship, <laughs> a very a very neck shaped like wrench, like a wrench that perfectly goes around a human being's yeah. neck. There there is some coerced evolution <laughs> of Colonel Willie Sharp uh, by <laughs> by an attempted murder <laughs> from Bruce Willis. <laughs> to be fair, he brought a gun to space, so it's sort of like you bring a gun to a. Wrench fight, you're gonna get wrenched. Which non sequitur? No, it is. It's a. It's a serious sequitur. Uh, why are there Gatling guns on those oh. armadillos in space? That makes no sense. Just so Steve Buscemi can get space madness and shoot one. NASA sent not one but three guns into space. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just illustrating how this is an extraordinarily American movie. Yeah, American and stupid and and flawed and in ways if you take time to pause. But, but fucking. Awesome. But great. And that's what we're going to get to right now is the emotional crux of the movie. You know, there are a lot of parts of this movie that, that are tear-inducing, I would say. Like, you know, we can talk about some of the other ones, but I think the part that everyone is going to cry, no matter how stone your heart might be, is the end of the movie. You know, Harry Stamper, Bruce Willis, has convinced Willie Sharp to allow him to drill. He basically drills the hole. AJ, Ben Affleck shows up. He helps out. They make the hole big enough. Hooray! We're, we're probably fine, and then they. But there's a there's a issue with the bomb, and it's who's gonna put the bomb in the hole? Who's gonna set the bomb off? And they decide it's gonna be AJ because they draw straws. They weirdly have six straws on a spaceship. Not sure why there's so many straws, but there's enough to draw, and and AJ loses. So Affleck is about to go down and take care of his bomb duty. And of course, in a scene that again, we were in, in 1998, we were kids. I don't know if I realized this was going to happen as an adult. It's obvious it's going to happen. Bruce Willis pulls AJ's air out, takes his place and basically says, I love you. You're the son. I wish you were my son. And you know, take care of my daughter for me, which I, we were watching. I, te- that was the hardest. I teared up the entire movie. Like that is beautiful. If Bruce Willis showed up in real life and said, you're like a son to me, I would just start crying immediately. I was like, Oh, Bruce, thank you. I didn't know I wanted to be, but the fact that I'm a son to you means so much. I think that's the part that gets you most. I, I think my, the two parts that get me, uh, three parts to get me. <laughs> There's, <laughs> Earlier on, it's um, the night before, the day before they're going to launch. He's at the old launch site with his daughter, Liv Tyler. And he tries to apologize to her for being such a horrible dad growing up. She won't let him apologize and makes him promise to come back. Helicopters fly over. The music goes up. Um, and I always tear up at that part. It's this part where you kind of get come to grips with the idea that the characters know that this is a nearly hopeless situation. And yet, they are demanding of one another that they embrace a faith that brings them home, that brings him home, even though the chances are he never will come home. There's that part. I don't get as choked up at the AJ and you know Harry Stamper part, but it is still a very tear-jerking moment. The one I get 
and I think you'll like this part too, is when he tells Colonel Willie Sharp, I will make 800 feet. I swear <laughs> to God I will. That part gets me. And there is nothing more American, nothing more American than failing over and over and over again and giving a mountain of empiric evidence that something is not working and you are at fault and the only person with any sense in the room is telling you that you're fucking up and this is not going to work <laughs> the most American thing in the world is to get a deep gruff voice look somebody in the eye and say I will make 800 feet I swear to god I will <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Willis makes a lot of proclamations in this movie. Harry Stanford is very confident. And to, again, to the movie's credit, some of them he just can't make. Like, he does. He, you know, he says he's going to come home and he doesn't. But that particular one is a beautifully, like he said, a beautifully American statement that he insists he's going to make it. And he does. And there's no reason to assume that he will at that point. Zero. He's but given you nothing but They're sort of fucked anyway. So at a certain, you know, there's an element where it's like, okay, well, why not let him try? You know, that, that, yeah, that's a fair. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It could be fine. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> But, but then we get to, we get to I think the part that we both agree on is maybe the most emotional part. They win, maybe. they blow it up. We win, well, Gracie. Well, we're not there yet. Oh, no, we're right? not there it's yet. The okay. Part right before that, where she ha she sees him on television. They have their video conversation, and forever also recognized in the Aerosmith "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing" video, where Steven we, Tyler is talking to, which we will get to. <laughs> we're already touching like an hour here, so we're going to. But thank you all for listening for this 60-minute Armageddon conversation. And let me tell you, let me say again, if you didn't like that movie and you don't like this conversation, <laughs> you can go fuck yourself. If you made it this far and you don't like this conversation, I'm not sure what's going on in your life. That's a curious. <laughs> you do need, maybe you need more friends. And, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You got two friends right here. Yeah. Two friends talking to you. Thank you. But the part where she refuses to accept his apology again and says... Something to the effect of, uh, everything good in me comes from you. That part gets me every time. Not the part where she says, Daddy, no. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's the part right before that that gets me. That's a beautiful sentiment, too. And, like, it, again, I think the movie does well. Is it, makes, it makes a lot of sense in the context of what's happening. Because, like, his obstinance, his stubbornness, his leadership, all these things that are certainly flaws for being in a relationship or probably raising a child – paid off in saving the world you know like he's sort of a piece of shit and he and like his but his daughter realizes like hey you're kind of a piece of shit but thanks for saving the world and like thanks for making me kind of a piece of shit in ways that hopefully i will make productive you know like there is there it's not it's it's a earned it's an earned moment you know like it is characters who we've who we've fortunately though again the women in this movie are pretty scarce live tyler is relatively well fleshed out relatively uh productive and successful in her own right and you do buy at that point that she would realize how valuable that the traits that she and her father share how valuable they are in certain scenarios like it is it's it's, it's a long movie and it's a i think they could stand to cut some parts but the parts that are there do set up well for the parts that come like there's there are very few things that happen in the first you know half hour to an hour that don't come back in some way to inform the last hour which i think is a trait of a really good story and this kind of culminates we've brought this theme up a thousand times about how this is a very american movie harry stamper is the quintessential american hero right he spends an entire movie showing that he doesn't play by the rules he does it his way he's flawed he's the stoic male um, doesn't have time for women or children. 
And don't trust in expertise. Don't trust in evidence. Don't trust in any of that stuff. Trust in my, my ability to do the courageous thing when the time comes. I can't think of a more American like uh, actor or American movie star trope than that. He is a quintessential American hero, and he sacrifices himself, which is not always the quintessential American story, but it's perfect for this story. He sacrifices himself. He says we win, Gracie, which we talked about, which is great. And... It's beautiful. He gives uh, AJ Ben Affleck the NASA patch to give back to uh, Billy Bob Thornton, which is great. A callback to earlier in the movie. And he dies. And it's great. And it is super emotional. And you get a little stylish flourish type deal where you see like his memories and his past thoughts. And he's in like some weird like cross arms pose for a second there. Like he's, you know, dying. And so it's a Michael. kind of stupid. Stupid. No, yeah, no, it's no, a Michael no. Bay flourish. Whatever. Yeah. If that's what he wants to be. When if, if We're not going to critique the death of Harry Stamper. He can go out however Michael Bay wants him to go out. But it does build to what another thing I think is really, really nice is we get that going home scene, which I think, you know, they could have just cut on them going through space and the movie being over. But what we do get is we get them landing and we get everyone coming out. We get a little crack from Buscemi about, oh, sorry, I had space madness. I'm good now. Ha ha ha. But then we get what I think is the most wonderful scene in the movie. And I think this is where we bring the Friendship MVP award into the mix, which is a favorite award of yours. You're a big, Chris is a big fan of friendship, loves it, loves when movies really hammer home the value of two humans connecting. And I think Colonel Willie Sharp is a nominee for the Friendship MVP Mm. in that scene because he, you know, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler are embracing. They're so happy to be together. Willie Sharp comes into frame and says, Colonel Willie Sharp requesting permission to shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man I've ever met beautiful and then they shake hands and that's it that's that's i think i believe that's the last line in the entire movie i think then ben affleck and Liv Tyler kiss and the movie's over maybe there's a scene where steve buscemi and the, the prostitute or you know, that runs up to him they might have a little kissy scene after that unclear yeah. i forget it's, it's something about wanting to make babies it's the last substantial line in the movie yeah and it is great and it is just you see willie sharp having come around you see the influence that bruce willis had in everyone and it's just such a wonderful little moment like it's just great and it's it's like it's again respecting the characters willie sharp is this very buttoned up military type like the fact that he goes to the lengths to say that just shows how much he cares about this dude and how the impact of this guy's sacrifice had in him in this little amount of time like i just think it is just it's a scene that a lot of movies would have left out they just it's not necessary you know it doesn't it doesn't tie to the story is essentially over but they recognize that this is relevant like this really is one more way to hammer home how great what Harry did was and how important it was. And it's a great moment for Figner. You see this character come full circle and saw the value in the choices he made and just gets to have this beautiful little tender thing with Liv Tyler. And it also gives Liv Tyler, like, it does sort of subjugate her to being Harry's daughter one more time, but it's sort of like a little passing the torch kind of thing where it's like, hey, you know what? You're his daughter. You're pretty cool. He's really cool. Like, let me tip the cap to the Stamper family in general for being badass. And I just think it's a beautiful little moment. Have you stroked your William Fickner boner enough? (laughs) 
It's a great moment. Sorry if it's just if anyone other doesn't like it again. Chris has already told you what you can do. It's we, just no. We've got some great William Fickner moments in the movies Heat and The Dark Knight. We can also go into. If sure. I mean, I'd be happy to talk about him. He's tremendous. He's ready Usually, to talk he plays, at any point. He yeah. plays like a bad, like, you know a, a corporate chromum a lot of the time. So it's nice to see him really playing like a real tried and true. His haircut is very you know you could you could like it's like it's incredibly immaculately cut like it's a buzz to the extreme like. He's uh he's he's square jaw. Oh, so square, oh, yeah. Man. Looking good. Well, I will I will say this, and I I did appreciate under your tutelage, I have come to appreciate that moment more. And you know, the the words he says I do think have a deeper meaning than just the obvious he's brave because he killed himself uh to save the world. It's also that Bruce Willis was the one who showed this military man, this man who is built his life, career, success on the idea of discipline, protocol, following the rules. Uh, being a good soldier, being a good officer. And Bruce Willis's character, Harry Stamper, did teach him this lesson of sometimes the more courageous thing to do is to throw those things to the wind uh, because those are in some ways crutches at times, uh, pro- falling back on protocol, falling back on discipline. And sometimes the more courageous thing to do is to have the faith that people you don't necessarily trust, people that you don't know, people that haven't done anything to earn your trust will come through for you. And I think that is probably when he talks about the the bravest man he's ever met, I think that's in part what he's referring to, that Harry Stamper is a man who allows faith in his life, not necessarily religious faith, but just faith that these humans will somehow figure out a way, these flawed, imperfect uh, humans who have made mistakes every step of the way will somehow find a way to make it work in the end. Under that context, I can agree that that moment is very powerful and one of the best in the movie. And I think, you know, in terms of friendship MVP, it shows Fickner was was a doubter at a certain point. Like, he didn't believe. He didn't think that, you know, he didn't know this person. He had no reason to trust this person. But over the course of the film, he learns the value of uh, believing in someone else, believing in humans over protocol, believing in humans over the rules. And I think there is a lot of friendship elements there. Like, sometimes friendship is seeing the good in somebody and not totally, you know, maybe it's not totally prevalent, but you're like, you know what? I'm going to be friends with this person because I think there's a diamond in there and I'm going to work on it and I'm going to find those sweet spots and I'm going to, you know, see if this person deserves to be a friendship MVP. And I think he, he, uh, he put the time in, in a very stressful circumstance. And that's why I think he deserves the nod. Steve, if I had just strangled you within an inch of your life, would you still defuse a nuclear weapon for me? If I had known you as long as I have for many, many years now, I think I would, yes. I think I would. It makes what Willie Sharp does even more impressive because he doesn't know this guy from anybody. They just spent a little time together, and he still trusts him to get the job done. So do you have any other nominees for Friendship MVP? Who else do you think is up for grabs in this movie? I think Chick is is a nominee for Friendship MVP, but Chick has already won the Sixth Man of the Year award (laughs) for this movie, and you can't double dip on the awards. Chick is like a steady friend. Chick doesn't have a lot of big moments where he, you know, backs Bruce Willis in a super, you know, loud and and big way. But he is always there by his side. He's always helping out. Like, he definitely gets a lot of credit for that. Chick is like a, he's like a pitcher that wins 12 to 15 a year for you, keeps his ERA under four. He'll never win the Cy Young. Mm. But damn it, you want him as your number three or four <laughs> starter. That's right. 
<laughs> and I will say, the LVP in this movie is Steve Buscemi as Rock Hounds. He is, you know, he gets space madness. That's not necessarily his fault, but he's just a naysayer the whole time. He's like, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And he's just constantly being sort of a jerk. Like, he's just, he's horny. He certainly puts hoes before bros, which, when you're up in space, is not the way to be. You want to make sure that you're focusing on your bros. Even well, if the bros are women, like, you still want to make sure your space bros are number one priority. Lucky for everyone up there, as we've already touched on, there were no hoes in this <laughs> yeah, movie. Right. But I think he was always thinking about, when I get back, I'm going to be fucking. It's like, well, let's focus on the space mission first. Like, he was like, if we die, I die. And if we live, I'm going to be fucking. But he's not thinking about how he can help out a ton. He's just a big LVB. But there is a great element, like him and his Fargo friend, Peter Stormare, oh. Get yeah. one nice scene together where he's tied up and Peter Stormare removes the mouth over his tape so he can yell again. That's great Fargo friendship right there. Like, it's two Fargo buddies reuniting for a nice little scene. I enjoyed that immensely. Yeah. Uh, it, again, what did we say during the movie? It was like uh, <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> it was like Robert, Robert and, Newman. and Newman in one movie. They meet again <laughs> in The Sting. <laughs> yeah. That's Stormare and Buscemi coming back together. I've got one more award to give out, and this is a very uh, Philadelphia-centric, fuck Los Angeles-centric uh, award. <laughs> this is the Matt Stairs Into the Night best pinch hit performance <laughs> in this movie. Hands down goes to Jason Isaacs as the cocky British scientist who informs the uh, generals and NASA spokesmen that, or excuse me, uh, informs the generals and Billy Bob Thornton that the president's... Uh, Scientific advisor got a C at MIT in astrophysics. Gives us the uh, analogy of the firecracker in the open and closed hand, and gives us the solution for defeating uh, the asteroid. So again, defeating the asteroid, defeating this personified asteroid. <laughs> so again, the Matt Stairs Into the Night Best Hit Pitch Hit Performance Award goes to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> I'd like to give, I don't have a name for this award, but I'd like to say Stanley Anderson as the president is a great president in this too. Like he has a good little speech. He's in the movie for a decent amount of time, but they didn't waste time casting like some known person to be the president. They were like, it's, let's get some old ass man character actor to be the president. Let's make sure he has the gravitas to handle the big scene, but it's not about the president. It's not about the suits making decisions. It's about the people on the ground making the choices. So I think Stanley Anderson is a very perfect president. He looks the part, he acts the part pretty well. And then when it's time for him to go away, you don't wonder where's the president? Like, which is a sort of stupid thing about Independence Day in retrospect. I mean, it makes sense that Bill Pullman is there a lot, but you don't need the president there for every little thing. Like, you know, it's nice. Sometimes it's nice to have the president be just a lingering thought in the background as opposed to someone who's there constantly on screen all the time. One might call this the Charlie Manuel Award. <laughs> I don't know. For, for, for best old man? For <laughs> stable yet understated leadership. <laughs> although, although this president was much more eloquent than Charlie Manuel he ever sure was. was. But they're both old white men. They are. Let's just give it to them. They're old white men. That's true. We can't deny that. They're very old and very, very white. Chris, do you have any final thoughts on Armageddon? We're wrapping up here. We've talked a lot about it. It's a great film. Let's say, do you have any final thoughts? Where does this stand in your pantheon of fine films? Like, I don't know how you rank your favorite movies, whether it's rewatchable, whether it's just quality, but what do you think about this now that we sat down and watched it again? Yeah, I remember saying when we did the uh, A Star is Born uh, podcast that for people who are not uh, trained in the, a, a specific type of art, 
the only way we can measure art if we are not experts in said art is does the piece of art evoke emotion and evoke thought i think those are the two most important measures and this movie <laughs> definitively does not evoke thought in fact it demands you turn off your thought uh but it does evoke a ton of emotion there are a few movies that have made me cry as frequently and as consistently as this movie does and say what you want about Michael Bay after the 90s and the movies he's made in the 2000s and how kind of garbage his career has turned despite the money that he continues to make. This movie does make you feel good. It makes you cry. It makes you feel something. And I think uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And as long as you go into a movie like this knowing that that's all you're looking for, it, you're looking to laugh, you're looking to cry, you're looking to enjoy the charisma of the people on screen, guess what? That's a great movie experience, and it's a movie experience I've gotten with a very small percentage of movies uh, in my life. So this will always rank up there for me as one of the more enjoyable movie-watching experiences I'll ever have. I would concur. And again, I would say, uh, I would hammer home the point that it does not do these things cheaply. It does not do these things by poking you in, in, in voids or holes that are lazy or simple like it is a well-plotted film occasionally absurd occasionally stupid but it does take care and time to get from a point to a point to a point to a point i think that's why it's so good i think that's why we can watch it again 22 years after it came out and not just in a sort of like hey remember when we saw it when we were kids let's watch this sort of dumb movie again and laugh about it we watch it again and we genuinely are into the movie like we can take a step back and talk about how stupid it is and like it doesn't mean we're not we're not like you know glued to the screen it's not like a captivating film always but it's just fun it's good and i think it's really well done i think that gets lost in the flood of 22 years later thinking about this big dumb movie that came out in 1998 but it's, there's something there. It's, there's a, maybe not a heart to it, but there's, there's genuine care that went into this movie. They tried to make it good while also trying to make it loud and financially successful. And I just think that's a combo that doesn't always go together. Yeah, I think there's, there's kind of a 9-11-themed um, a country song uh, type of shameless plea to your emotions that doesn't feel like it happened in this movie. This movie really did try to earn that emotional response and did a spectacular job of it. Yep, and it's great. And if you haven't seen Armageddon recently, do so by the Criterion Collection. Absorb it into your life as best you can because it truly is a fantastic film. And that's why we sat down and talked about it for over an hour here. So, And again, if you don't like this movie... Go fuck yourself. <laughs> you have to go fuck yourself. We've hammered it. We've said it several times now. But <laughs> thank you all so much for joining us on this journey. We hope you like Armageddon as much as we do. We hope you watch it. We hope this inspire you to either watch it recently or to remember this wonderful film that has been around for quite a while and is truly a treat. Chris, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. You're a passionate man. We love having you on and talking about this and that. Very eclectic films, swinging from Star is Born to this one, but you're, you speak eloquently on all of the above. So It has been my pleasure, Steve. Go sing Don't Want to Miss a Thing at your next karaoke outing. Oh, it's a beautiful karaoke song. The crowd loves it. It's in the back of their mind. They don't even realize that when you start belting it out, they, they respond very, very well. Thank you always for listening. Subscribe to In Real Deep Podcast on all your podcast apps. InRealDeep.com for all your film criticism and podcast needs. We are there. We love to have you. 
Again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Oh, he stole my line, you son of a... with you is a moment of trend.